Lock your doors. Close the blinds. Change your passwords. This is the Dry Cleaner Cast. Welcome to the Dry Cleaner Cast, a podcast that takes a new look at the war on terror, its legacy, and espionage in the 21st century. This podcast is written, edited, and presented by Chris Carr. Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible.com. As a listener of this podcast, you can get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com forward slash drycleanercast. Apparently, there are over 180,000 audio titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. So Audible is perfect for those on the move. On this month's podcast, author and journalist Edward Lucas, who wrote a fantastic book called Deception in 2012, joins us to provide much-needed insight into Russia and its role in the world today. If you enjoyed this episode, you can actually download a copy of Deception at Audible. So do take advantage of the 30-day free trial. I hope you enjoy the show. Opinions expressed by guests on this podcast do not necessarily represent those of the filmmakers and sponsors of the film, The Dry Cleaner. Edward, uh, welcome to the Dry Cleaner cast and thank you for joining me today. Pleasure to be here. Can you tell us a little bit about how you came to be interested in Russia and Russian espionage? I've been interested in what we loosely call Eastern Europe since I was a small child. And I think at the age of eight I was pestering my parents with questions about what had been happening in the Balkans in the um, period before the First World War. And I was always obsessed with the idea that countries could appear and disappear. So in, the, in this country, England's been basically the same shape since the Norman Conquest, and we've occasionally you know, Wales and Scotland and Ireland sort of became part of the United Kingdom, in the case of Ireland, stopped being part of it. But watching countries like the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth expand to be enormous and then disappear off, off the map, and I find that sort of ebb and flow of borders very, very puzzling. And I got particularly interested in the idea of countries that have been subsumed into the Soviet Union and the Baltic states, which were there on the map. If you looked, 1939, weren't there anymore after 1945. And then seeing the sort of ghostly outlines of these countries, but renamed as the Estonian, Latvian and Lithuanian SSR. And to a you know, 12-year-old, this is really very puzzling. And I... Uh, So that that was one thing. The other thing was that we had a Yugoslav um, lodger staying with us when I was a teenager, and she was connected, her family was connected with the royalist emigration, and so in conditions of considerable secrecy, she was meeting her family members in Oxford, um, which would have got her family back in Yugoslavia into real trouble if it had ever become known. And so there was this sort of air of, of slight danger and intrigue, which in Oxford in the 1970s, um, one felt one was a very long way away from anything dangerous or intriguing, but then here it was actually um, someone who was living with us, um, who was 
worried about the communist secret police finding out what she was up to. Yeah, brings it to home really, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So let's talk about Russia. Russia's gone through obviously huge political shifts since the end of communism and the 1990s are considered near of weakness and chaos for Russians. Can you just tell us a bit about that time? I think the 1990s was a tremendously traumatic time and it's very tempting to say if only things had been different um, we would have ended up in a better place. My feeling is that the Soviet Union collapsed in such a chaotic way with so many uh, things that infected and distorted what came afterwards, that the 1990s were always going to be very difficult. It's, it's a, I think, a fallacy to say if only we'd had not had shock, shock therapy or if Yeltsin had been different or something. That, that, that There was no path that led from 1991 to a stable, prosperous, law-abiding country um, in a matter of a, of a few years. We were, the ship was already wrecked in 1991. Um, but it was a remarkable time to be covering Russia and, and living in Russia because you had a combination of tremendous economic dislocation, unemployment, wages being paid late, um, feeling of tremendous uncertainty, coupled with all the old political certainties being turned upside down, so things that you had been told were good were now bad and things you'd been told were bad were now good. And then the growth of corruption and the um, way in which sort of spivs and goons suddenly became um, powerful and respected, if not respectable, people. And so for many Russians, this was a really horrible period. And I think that a, the, perhaps the biggest driver of Putin's success has been this kind of sort of, I think, slightly phony stability, but at least the belief that tomorrow is going to be pretty much like today and today was pretty much like yesterday, which is something we take for granted over here and which um, was absolutely not the case in the 1990s. And you were you were covering you were actually based in Russia and covering that sort of period of time. Is that right? Yes, I, I moved in um, 1990 to cover what was then the Soviet Union, based in the Baltic states, and um, was there pretty much solidly for four years with a bit of time in Washington in between. And so by the time I left the Baltic states, they were independent countries mm. heading towards the European Union and maybe even to NATO. When I arrived, they were still under Soviet occupation. Mm. And then I went back. I then covered Russia from um, Vienna, um, where I was editing a newsletter that dealt with business in Russia. And then I went back in 1998 as the bureau chief of The Economist to cover what turned out to be the end of the Yeltsin era and the rise of Putin. And what was that? What did that how, was the, how was that? What was that like to be there at that time? Well, I, th I think one had the feeling that a kind of um, a whole series of assumptions were collapsing in 1998 that we had lent large amounts of money to the Yeltsin um, regime or uh, leadership, um, which most of which had sort of disappeared like the snow in the sunshine, mm -hmm. and the idea that you could just you know, Russia in sort of one leap was going to become a Western-style country had really been tested to destruction, and and so there was a feeling of sort of of, of sort of fragility and mm. enormous panic, um, not just because the Western bankers were losing a lot of the money that they'd invested, but also because there was the feeling that the, the Yeltsinites might end up in jail. You know, there was a real thought of impeachment, there was worries about some um, you know, real civil, civil chaos looming. And then suddenly Putin just pops out from nowhere yeah. and goes from being a sort of zero to hero in the space of a few months, accompanied by the terrifying terrorist attacks, which now mm. turn out not to have been terrorist attacks, 
and the war in Chechnya, which was obviously a, a very terrible um, and blood, bloody affair. And then by the time I left, um, this sort of strange calm was reigning all over Russia in 2002, that there was a tough guy in charge at the top, and for better or worse, most Russians seemed to be willing to go along with that. Well, let's talk a little bit about um, Vladimir Putin. Um, tell us a bit about his rise to power and what is known about him. I think the single most important thing about Putin is that he's a KGB guy. He's a trained KGB officer, not, I think, a particularly successful one. Um, he was, um, seems to be more involved in counterintelligence, which is checking up on your, um, your intelligence officer colleagues rather than actually um, running agents and you know, thinking up operations and things like that. So he wasn't really at the glamorous end of the KGB. Um, but he, um, like many KGB officers, found himself at a bit of a loose end when things collapsed and went first of all to the university in St. Petersburg and then to the city administration. And I think that's the second most important thing, is that he was at the nexus of a kind of new hybrid where you had the city administration, people who understood about foreign trade, many of them from the former KGB's economic department, um, with very lucrative um, arrangements involving the export of raw materials, or and in this case in the Kirishi oil refinery, um, certain connections with organised crime, and um, this was a kind of a, 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 something we hadn't seen in Russia before: crime, city administration, or, or government administration, um, the OKGB business, all sort of overlapping in a very mutually beneficial way. And I think that the real story of the '90s is that that very powerful hybrid sort of nuisance, if you want, that um, took root in St. Petersburg, then moved to Moscow and took over the whole country. Since, well, you know, since sort of Putin's been in power, I mean, um, Russia's now sort of been described by US diplomats as a, in 2010, I believe it was, um, as a sort of mafia state. Uh, certain people have benefited from the situation in Russia and a lot of ordinary people aren't benefiting from it. Can you sort of tell us a little bit about Yes, and I, I think mafia is a, is a very specific term, actually, mm. which is best applied just to, 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 to Italy. Mm. Um, but I think that it's fair to say that Russia is, is, is in part a kleptocracy. Mm. And one of the most important things about Russia is that the top 1,000 or 2,000 people in the country steal absolutely colossal amounts of money, mm. either in natural resource rents or in what are, in technical terms, bureaucratic rents, other known to ordinary people as bribes. Mm. And there's this sort of pyramid of, 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 of bribery going up to the, up to the very top. Mm. And of course, the really scandalous thing about this is that the, this money, although it's stolen in Russia, is laundered in the West. And it was one of the big sort of, I think, wake-ups for me, realisations, was that I'd always been worried about corruption mm. in the East. And I came to realise over the last 20 years that corruption in the East only really succeeds because there's also corruption in the West. Mm. And are there any particular... Uh, sort of countries that um, sort of the Russian money is being laundered in and things like that? Or? Well, Britain's a big one. Yeah. I mean, the city of London is a, an absolute awash with money, not just from Russia, but from other parts of the world where rich people have um, you know, very advanced personal financial planning. Mm. And it's a source of real amazement to me that even our financial regulators and supervisory bodies don't seem to be able to make the bankers and lawyers and accountants in this country actually abide by the laws of this country. You mentioned earlier um, 
So these sort of terrorist attacks that, uh, well, I should say supposed terrorist attacks that happened around the time Putin came to power. Um, can you just tell us a little bit about that and then how the, these events were used to his political advantage? Yes, and Russia was no stranger to Chechen terrorism, and I think there's no doubt that there were terrorist atrocities in Russia that were perpetrated by um, by Chechens in an absolutely um, in a deplorable way. And there was the Budyonovsk um, hospital uh, attack, for example, which I, I remember very clearly, um, very um, brutal and spectacular um, atrocity. But the funny thing about the terrorist, um, so-called terrorist attacks of 1999 was that it was never really clear that it was done by Chechens. It was blamed on Chechens. Mm. And there was this very mysterious attack in Ryazan where the bomb didn't go off. It, the explosives were discovered in a basement by some vigilant locals. And on inspection, it turned out that the um, car that had been planting, carrying the people planting the explosives, um, had a fake number plate. But when it was tracked down, turned out they were FSB officers from the security service and there was a very unconvincing explanation that this was some kind of drill. But it did look very much as though the um, FSB, the Russian security service, had actually been planting a real bomb. Mm. And this would of course fit with the theory that the, bomb, that the other bombs were also planted by the FSB in order to panic Russians into thinking that only Putin could um, bring you know, stability and order to the country. And what's particularly remarkable is that the people who tried to investigate this Ryazan bombing almost all ended up dead. In your book, you mentioned um, with the sort of drill explanation, there were a few things that didn't quite add up with that because the, um, the local police actually tested the explosive and found explosives, while later on it was said to be sugar or something like that. Yes. And also, there would have been better coordination with the local authorities in that area if it were a drill. If it had been a drill, mm. you would, I mean, it would be a very weird sort of drill in mm. the first place. It'd be very odd to do it without telling the local authorities in Ryazan and um, it, didn't, it didn't fit into any sort of comprehensible pattern of activity and there was also a mysterious thing when something was announced in the Duma um, that before the event had actually happened and so it did look to me um, and the, the, the details are all there on, on, online and um, what's particularly striking to me is I think that Western governments know about this. Mm. And they carried on dealing with Putin, even though that they knew he had. Um, I think they, they know pretty much for certain that he came to power, treading over the corpses of hundreds of his fellow citizens mm. who were killed in a completely cynical way in order to create a kind of you know, convenient political event. Mm. And that yet, for it took another ten years before people really started shunning Putin. And I think that he and his accomplices are not just colossal thieves but also murderers and it's um it's it's striking to me that it's taken a long time for that to come home many people seem to be dismissive or naive about russia being an important player in geopolitics today we know a lot about america but we don't know much about russia when we talk critically about russia many people dismiss concerns raised as just being cold war paranoia can you can you just tell us a little bit about what russia's geopolitical aims are and why they should concern us i think Russia has several aims. One is that the regime wants to stay in power and it regards the, big, the outside world as a big threat to that. They don't want successful um, country, ex-Soviet countries on their doorsteps. It casts an unpleasant light on their own failure to modernise mm -hmm. the country and diversify it and build strong institutions. 
Um, I think they also are very worried by the idea of a, of a strong multilateral rules-based international order because if you're Russia faced with a 500 million strong EU or the West generally, which is you know, a, billion, a billion people, um, you are going to be in a junior position, a weaker position. Whereas if you can get to a bilateral um, negotiation, then Russia as a, as a big country, big in landmass, big in population, quite big in GDP, can drive a much better bargain. So I think that they, are, they feel profoundly threatened by the idea of a united West and of playing a very successful game in dividing rule. So just briefly back to Russia's political aims, a lot of, I've noticed a lot of... Um, I call them apologists for Russia. I don't know if that's the right term, but um, certainly when like Russia invaded the Ukraine a few years back, one of the things um, that a lot of people sort of defended Russia by saying it was sort of um, it was a reaction to NATO expansionism. Russia seems to obviously have a clear issue with NATO. Can you sort of just tell us a little bit about sort of Russia and its relationship with NATO? Russia used to have rather a good relationship with NATO in the nineteen nineties that um, under Boris Yeltsin. Um, he didn't like NATO expansion, but he also saw that it was um, going to happen, and Russia got something in exchange, which was um, very good access to NATO's decision-making process, not actually as a member, but we had the NATO-Russia Founding Act, the NATO-Russia Council, and Russia was um, on track to be a very close um, ally to NATO in the way that perhaps Japan is. You know, this was not a... Um, uh, uh, ideal solution from Russia's point of view, but it was uh, perfectly workable. Mm. And the paradox is that the more Russia has complained about NATO expansion, um, particularly under Putin, the more sensible it seemed to do it. Mm. And so um, I think if uh, if Russia had said right back in the 1990s, um, we are very cognizant of the pain that our former colonies have um, captive nations have experienced and we're going to do everything possible to make them feel as safe and comfortable as possible and basically treated them the way that Germany treated the Netherlands or Denmark or um, other countries that had suffered from Hitler's um, Third Reich, um, then I think the pressure for NATO expansion would be not less but the, this sort of grumbling imperialism from the Kremlin um, made um, people in Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania and Poland feel quite correctly, as it turned out, that Russia hadn't really turned over a new leaf. And there was still this lingering imperialist outlook. And so it's, I think it was a very good thing we expanded NATO. We probably should have done more and should have done it earlier. And unfortunately, Ukraine and Georgia didn't quite catch the train in a way that has um, had bad consequences for them. But I think there's, there's a fundamental issue here, which is, do we regard the former captive nations as independent countries that can make their own decisions? And if we do, which is basically the Western position, then they have the right to try to join NATO. It doesn't mean they'll succeed, but that's, you know, they, they, they can choose their own geopolitical orientation. And if you think that, that because of their geographical location, they have to take account of what Russia wants, which is a basically a kind of post-imperialist approach, um, then they don't have the right for the, to, you know, for, they aren't fully sovereign. And that's not, that's a real clash of interests and values. It's not something that can be resolved by diplomacy. Uh, we can try and manage the conflict, but we can't end it. And I think that the 
biggest problem that um, some people in the West have with this is the idea that we, we should all be able to get along. There's no reason why we can't all agree. But actually on some things there are just fundamental disagreements and I think that this sort of you know, the legacy of empire is exactly one of those. And it's a paradox actually that the people who tend to be, have a softest spot for Putin tend to be people on the left who would probably be um, like to describe themselves as anti-imperialists, but where you have real live imperialism or neo-colonialism, whatever you want to call it, actually happening on our doorstep, they tend to be rather soft on the imperialist and rather blind to the um, wishes and interests of the of the former colonies. Yeah, it's deeply ironic, isn't it? Um, actually, talk about supporters of Putin. I mean, I've also noticed he does seem to have a lot of support on the far right in, in, um, in the West, if I put it that way. Um, and he seems to be trying to present himself as a defender of Christian values, very much so in the war against ISIS. It's a real paradox mm. here that the, the Putin support comes from three strands. There's mm. the, the left, who like him because he's anti-American. Mm. There's the right who like him because he believes in national sovereignty and tr traditional social conservative values. And then there's what I call the greedy middle, who just say Russia's a big country, we can make lots of money there, let's forget about the politics. Mm. And what's the, so odd about this, if you put these three strands together, they would hate each other, possibly to the point of even beating each other up. You know, the far right and far left um, get into punch-ups when they meet on the street. But when it comes to Putin, they seem to have very similar views. And, they, and both the far left and the far right um, dislike um, plutocrats and you know, bankers and people in the middle. Mm. And, and the, you know, the dislike's mutual. And yet they all share this um, fascination and, and liking for um, Vladimir Putin's Russia, which in fact delivers nothing. It is actually not a bastion of moral values and social conservatism. Um, it's extremely decadent and unpleasant in, in terms of how it operates. It doesn't really believe in national sovereignty because it habitually invades and bullies other countries. <laughs> um, and it's not a great place to do business because it's so corrupt. So in each case, they're chasing a mirage. Yes. <laughs> They are indeed. Um, no, Putin's just a very popular man. I'm, I'm amazed he manages to keep so many different people happy. It's a sort of Berlusconi thing. I think mm. people, people see in him what they want. Mm. And as I said at the beginning, it's a great contrast to what happened before. And you know, for many Russians to think, oh, we had a decade of chaos and humiliation and, and, and you know, real uncertainty. And now at least our country is more or less respected. Um, it's more or less stable. We have a guy in charge who clearly is in charge. Mm. And that's as that that meets my my rather modest political expectations, and I'll now get on with my private life and not bother about politics. But you know, thank you, Putin, for meaning that I don't have to worry. Mm. And, and I suppose the nineties are deeply etched on the psyche of Russians today. It feels, is that right? Or? Yeah, and the nineties mm. were a very very traumatic period. Mm. I mean, we in Britain were scarred by the thirties, and the thirties in Britain we still have a folk memory of of dull cues and and uh, sort of. Uh, terrible um, unemployment and hardship. Um, that was nothing compared to what the Russians suffered in the 90s. Let's, let's shift a little bit to Russian intelligence today. Um, first off, can you give us a quick guide to the kind of key agencies and what they do? Well, there's basically three. There is the GRU, um, with the military intelligence, who are, if you like, more on the sort of hit-and-run side. They go for um, short-term, more short-term, more tactical um, uh, sorts of information and also for special operations and they will, if necessary, carry out um, you know, assassinations and things like that. There's the SVR, which is the remains of the old elite um, first chief directorate of the KGB, which is more interested in long-term 
political intelligence. And then there's the FSB, which is the, basically the domestic security service, but of late has been um, much more involved in foreign, foreign operations, particularly in countries close to Russia, and also specialised in working on the Russian diaspora and trying to use the Russian diaspora as a way of both controlling political opposition at home, but also exerting influence abroad. Well, let's talk a little bit about that, because you mentioned in your book Deception, um, you quote a top KGB analyst named Amy Knight who described the FSB as not only an instrument of power in Russia, but it also determines who holds it. Can you just talk, talk us through how the FSB plays a part in determining who holds power in Russia? Well, the FSB is one of the most powerful institutions in Russia, and it has a mixture of economic and political power. Um, so it has very strong links with lucrative businesses and it's one of the ways you know, power turns into wealth and wealth turns into, into power. Um, I think that it's, it's not the only, Russia isn't a monolith, so there are other powerful institutions as well. There's the Interior Ministry, there's the Prosecutor's Office, um, there's companies such as Gazprom and Rosneft, big um, natural resource companies, all jostling for position. Um, one of the particular things the FSB has is a huge store of compromat of compromising material, and they're they're good at bugging phones and bugging buildings, and they can get embarrassing videos, embarrassing emails, embarrassing phone calls, and and use them. Um, and they are particularly good at that sort of um, sort of blackmail and intimidation, which the which the KGB was good at. It's not an ace; it doesn't mean it doesn't always work, but it gives them a, a, a it's a very strong card that can't can't play. Well, one thing we know a lot about um, today is the Western intelligence services kind of capabilities for eavesdropping, but we don't talk much about what the Russians do. Have you got any insight into sort of the Russian capabilities? Well, the Russians are a world-class cyber power um, when it comes to hacking, and they can get into computers and networks of all kinds. Um, the main capability they've displayed recently was getting into the democratic parties' um, emails, the Hillary Clinton campaign's e emails, that wasn't very sophisticated hacking. That was a bog-standard phishing operation where you send someone a fairly convincing-looking email which they click on and then enter their mm. password and log in, thinking that this is a legitimate um, login screen with the result that you then have access, the attacker have access to all their emails. Mm. It, um, that, it, that's not the sort of stuff that would win you a medal at GCHQ if you could do it. This is the sort of stuff that you that, bog-standard cyber criminal mm. um, does, but they have other capabilities as well, and they're, they're good at um, yeah, analysing other countries' critical national infrastructure and working out how to crash the power grid, for example, which they did in Ukraine. Um, that was a more sophisticated. Um, they have a, a, there was a, a, a particular bit of malware called Ouroboros, which was, I mean, snake, which is an extremely effective um, way of stealing information from um, government networks. There was another one called Agent BTZ or an American BTZ, which was the first really powerful um, bit of invisible malware. It was very hard to find it on, on a network. Disinfecting a computer was very difficult and that went through various Western foreign ministries and just basically hoovered up all their documents. It would, it would go to the, the waste bin, which is the recent documents folder, um, copy them, encrypt them, compress them and then get them off the network the next time someone took a USB stick home with them. Um, and this was almost invisible, um, very effective. So they're, they're, they're good at this sort of thing. In the light of the Snowden revelations, a lot of people were uh, very concerned about GCHQ and the NSA. Should they be worried about uh, the Russian intelligence services? Well, 
I think America has the toughest system of intelligence oversight of any country in the world. You know, the combination of the um, congressional oversight with the Senate Intelligence Committee, which may you know, may well be in the hands of a different party from the one that holds the White House. The FISA court, which is appointed by the Supreme Court and gives a tough um, independent judicial oversight. Then you've got the, you know, the elected president, and that can, that can change every, every four years, as we've seen. And then finally, you've got the professional sort of ethics of, of, of NSA and the people who work there themselves. And th these are four pretty powerful um, constraints on misbehaviour. And the striking thing to me of the, in the Snowden revelations was that although it showed the NSA had tremendous capabilities and that it you know, used its power to the maximum, there was absolutely no sign that it was being used to spy on the president's political opponents. Mm. And there was absolutely no sign it was being used for the um, private benefit of American big American companies. You know, either of those would have been absolutely devastating. There was not the slightest sign of it. They were doing basically what they're supposed to do, which is getting information about other countries. There's a clue in the term foreign, foreign intelligence. That's what foreign intelligence mm -hmm. services do. Yes. Um, and they were, they were very good at cracking codes and, and getting onto networks. And to me, it's deplorable that Snowden um, felt that this was, these were capabilities that should be revealed. Mm. I think where Snowden had a point was that the Patriot Act had been stretched very far and that there were senators who were worried about um, what they knew the NSA was doing, that they couldn't talk about it because it was classified. And the FISA court was, I think, um, struggling to keep um, up with what NSA was, was doing. And I think if Snowden had simply come out with that one initial document about the way in which the FISA court was unhappy about the metadata collection and warehousing, I think he would have had quite a good whistleblower defence. That was something the American people didn't really know what was being done, done in their name. And there's always going to be questions like that on the margins. But then con contrast that with the way that intelligence supervision happens in, in France, um, let alone in Russia where you have immense discretion at the top and very little um, oversight. And in this country, we've only lately brought in a judicial sort of handbrake on the decisions of the Home Secretary and the Foreign Secretary. So I think that the, we should be a lot more worried about um, what Russian and Chinese and Iranian um, intelligence is up to and, um, and be rather less paranoid about what our own country is doing. I'd just like to go back to the FSB. So. Um you mentioned at the FSB Academy that there's an idea that's planted in the curriculum today that there's a global conspiracy against Russia and it sort of centrals the curriculum. Can you just tell us a bit about this and how it might provide some insight into FSB actions and policies? Since the Soviet Union collapsed, there's been a kind of ideological hole in Russia. You know, what, what, what's, the, what's this all about? In the West, we have a rather sort of um, implicit, we don't often think about it, we know that we believe in democracy, rule of law, individual liberty and so on, and that's, that's why we do it. And if you said to a, um, a British intelligence officer, what are you fighting for, he would say, well, it's just the right for people to live normal lives, and that's what, that's what we're trying to, trying to defend. Russia want, needs a grand idea, and it's still, I think, struggling to find it. And there was, a, in the 19, 1990s, people said, we want the country to be democratic and prosperous and modern and successful. That didn't really take root. Um, there's a sort of Soviet nostalgia which is still there in some quarters of that you know, the Soviet Union was um, brought low by trickery and we need to sort of restore what we what we had. The games of 1945 were bought in blood 
and now we've, we've cheated out of them, so we're going to try and get them back again. Um, there's also a sort of czarist um, era idea of, of Russia as a unique civilization, a sort of specific sort of Christianity, the heir to Byzantium. And that then feeds into the idea that the West is always, the West did down the Byzantine Empire, the terrible behavior of the Crusaders who sacked Constantinople, and that Russia mustn't, Russia is the, the heir to Byzantium. Um, is like Byzantium, beset both from the east, from by uh, the south, by Muslims, but also from the west by um, fickle, unreliable, and malevolent Westerners, and so therefore it's it must be very vigilant and assume that it's uh, we behave like a besieged fortress, and that idea is absolutely baked into bits of the curriculum. For example, in the FSB Academy, but it sort of suffuses whole swathes of officialdom. And you mentioned also that the um, FSB had now got a stronger connection to the church, so it sort of sounds like it feeds into that kind of... Yeah, the, I mean, the Russian Orthodox Church has become a sort of substitute for the Communist Party ideology department, and it's a mixture of um, self-pity, um, aggrandizement, uh, the uh, obscurantism, social conservatism, um, sort of religiosity, perhaps more than religion, um, but it's uh, it seems to be quite a good fit. It looks pretty potty from the outside, but from inside Russia, people cling to it to say this is this is our our national idea. This is what we're about, and it's it, it's as important to Russians as the Constitution is to Americans. Um, although I would argue um, with rather more pernicious um, results. <laughs> Let's, um, let's have a chat about how Russian, how active Russian intelligence are today. Um, it's a very complicated area, um, and I'm also sort of just to chat about some of the different ways that Russian intelligence is active in the West today. Um, we hear many terms, and one of them is hybrid warfare. Can we talk about how hybrid warfare is used to further political aims and what it actually is? I don't really like the term hybrid warfare because it's new, and, and I think one should always be careful about inventing new jargon when the old jargon is still fine. Um, this is basically what Russia was doing in Eastern Europe from 1945 to 1949, as it was establishing control there. So you would attack your opponent with every tool you've got, um, ranging from military intimidation through to psychological warfare, propaganda, economic pressure, um, espionage, special operations. And this is this is not a new idea. Um, I think the internet has added elements of anonymity and ubiquity and speed um, to some parts of, of this. But the, the real point, I think, is that in the Soviet system and in totalitarian systems generally, everybody's playing on the same team. doesn't matter whether you're a businessman, a spy, a soldier, a journalist, um, academic, whatever. You are part of the, of the sort of the national offensive um, against the adversary. And you can be conscripted, and if you don't like it, you'll be in, you'll be in trouble. But basically, you 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 all play on the same team, on the same team. And in our system, everybody is separated by ethical, professional, legal um, boundaries. So you can't imagine Britain, the British government, setting up a task force of you know, the gas company Centrica, um, the Bank of England, BP, the Economist, the BBC, and MI6, and saying right. You each have got to, you know, got to work on this target of trying to establish influence in France. Mm. Just not the way Britain works. That's exactly the way that um, Russia works, and 
and before that, the Soviet Union. So Russian intelligence also use um, other tactics as well, uh, more conventional intelligence tactics where they have a, a declared agent, uh, sorry, a declared intelligence officer operating at their embassy, but they also seem to use um, undeclared agents quite a lot, known as illegals. Can you tell us a bit about their use of illegals in the West and how they operate? Um, the Soviet Union used illegals from very early on, and these are people who had convincing Western um, identities based on either faked or stolen um, documents, you know, a birth certificate from Argentina typically leading to showing that you were born of British parents in Argentina, therefore you get a British passport, you move to Britain, join the Defence Ministry or wherever and um, then get going with spying or whatever. And the Soviet Union was willing to put enormous efforts into this and when the Mitrokhin archive came out it was clear that quite a lot of these illegals had been doing very little. They'd been running flower shops. There was, there was one guy who was working in the BMW factory um, with a very um, you know, beautiful undercover identity and his only job was to make sure that the BMW factory in Germany wasn't being trans switched over to military production because from a Soviet point of view mm. what would be the point of having a car factory if it mm. wasn't capable of being you know, being used for, for, for military production and that would be a sign, a sign of sort of war preparations. So the Soviet Union, I mean, and we, we tend not to do it, um, use illegals, A, because it's much harder to get um, people from our system to go and live for many years in the Soviet Union. The penalties being caught are huge. The difficulty of getting, um, of, of, of creating convincing identities were, 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 were daunting. So it wasn't really something um, we did um, uh, um, on any, any great scale, particularly not um, in, in, except in, in the sort of latter decades of the Cold War. Um, the, um, what's changed is that the collapse of the Iron Curtain and the end of the sort of hermetic division between West and East has made it much easier for Russia to send what I call new illegals. And these are people like Anna Chapman, the um, famous red-headed Russian spy. Um, and she was really what she said she was. She was indeed um, married to a Brit. That's why she was called Anna Chapman. She then divorced him, but it's no, that's no crime and you can keep your name when you divorce if you choose to. She had real jobs doing, you know, running businesses and, and, and doing things. And there are many, many people like that. Um, hundreds of thousands of people in, in, in live in Britain and in um, North America and other countries who are um, Russians or from the former Soviet Union who are exactly who they say they are. And some of them are spies, and we don't know which ones for the, on the most part, and that's difficult. And they may be very part-time, they may just um, check in once a year with a case officer when they go home to Russia for their holidays. Um, they may be acting as spotters, just telling um, the case officer other people who can recruit. They may be there getting, stealing credentials, you know, showing us, you know, just need to check what exactly does a gas bill look like, someone may need that when they May, they may have access to databases like um, credit references, mobile phone subscribers, all sorts, all the stuff that's sort of rather humdrum elements of espionage. Mm. Having these sort of people who can run errands for you is very useful. Mm. And our system isn't very well geared up to deal with that because we don't have the sort of vetting and screening that we used to have back in the Cold War. And I don't think we, we, we will get it back. I don't want us to get it back. Yeah. Um, but huge numbers of people cross the old Iron Curtain all the time and they bring you know, with, with money and friends and relatives and all the rest of it. And this is something that you know, allows Russia to um, develop a new kind of intelligence capability that the Soviet Union could never have dreamt of. And I'm right thinking actually, um, MI5, I think only devotes something in the region of about 4% of the resources today to in counterintelligence. Is that right? I don't know. Well, I think it, I mean, the, 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 I think 
that was the case that at, at one point. Yeah. I think that that's gone up quite a lot, yeah. and I think that the um, whereas MI5's overwhelming priority used to be counterterrorism, mm. I think they're now ramping up their capabilities um, with regard to um, uh, China and particularly particularly Russia because the threat is very obvious. Because mm. one of the great things. I've sort of heard about is um, places like uh, Farnborough are big targets for Russian intelligence because obviously the, uh, a lot of weapons research, um, also defence research yeah. is done there. Um, and I was reading a book not long ago um, that described uh, an MI5 operation against a, a Russian intelligence officer who had a asset within a um, uh, one of the defence agencies based in Farnborough, and they seem to be sort of after um, kind of military technology secrets and things like that, which can then I think save them money in developing it themselves. I don't know if you have any sort of um, insight. Things well, like that. I mean, Russia is very keen on stealing military mm. um, secrets and military technology, partly because it means they can do it adopt countermeasures if they know um, what our equipment does, then their equipment can do something different. Um, they may want to pass it on to the Chinese in exchange for some favour for the Chinese, um, and um, they may want to try and manufacture it themselves. One other area, um, I don't know if it's totally linked to Russian intelligence, but we hear a lot about sort of Russian propaganda and organisations like Russia Today, I've always known as RT, and magazines, uh, sorry, internet uh, websites like uh, Sputnik and things like that. Um, can you just tell us a little bit about sort of Russia's sort of um, use of propaganda and how it sort of um, works their sort of geopolitical aims? Well, I'd be cautious about paying too much attention to Sputnik and RT. Mm. I think the the first thing to say is that we don't yet have a proper picture of the reach and impact of Russian propaganda, mm. and yeah, you know, we know everything about underarm deodorant and um, toothpaste and all the sorts of other things that people consume in this country. Mm. Um, we are not very good at finding out um, how people consume media, and particularly not this, this particular sort of media. And we should be, and this would be something you have to spend a few million pounds, you get a market research company mm. to drill down and find out who's watching RT, who's heard of Sputnik even, mm. who reads it, why they're reading it. Then you can do focus groups of those people and find out um, what sort of effect it's having. Is it um, reinforcing their existing um, beliefs or they're using it to find out new stuff. And my suspicion is that for m most chunks of the population, RT is invisible and has no impact. I think it does feed in as a, a kind of needle dripping poison into the journalistic mainstream because it um, is a way of getting um, spreading uncertainty and doubt. So people think okay, there's this plane was shot down in Ukraine, the Ukrainians say that um, it was the Russians did it, but look, well, here's a Russian channel saying that the Ukrainians did it. Well, let's at least say there's two sides to this story. Mm. So I think that is probably, the, and that's not a kind of mass appeal, that's very targeted just to try and infect the way um, decision makers in, in journalism work. And we can counter that, and I'm, I always say to my journalistic colleagues, if you're doing a programme about astronomy, you don't have to have an astrologer on the programme. Yes. Um, if you're having a programme about, with about um, people who think the Earth is round, you don't need to have a flat earther. Mm. So don't feel you always need to have a Russian um, propaganda spokesman on just to say that uh, the uh, MH17 was not shot down by the Ukrainians. Mm. And that you know, we have as, as journalists to worry about both truth and fairness. And sometimes mm. we can overemphasize fairness at the expense of truth. Well, was it, uh, last year there was a lot of controversy over the um, election of Donald Trump, um, and you know there was there was allegations there was Russian involvement, um, but not just with the 
um, just the email hacks, but the way the information was sort of spread online through um, organisations like WikiLeaks and so on. And obviously, Russia today uh, very much capitalised on on the revelations in the email hacks. Do you have any? Um, you mentioned a little bit about it earlier, but do you have any sort of thoughts and insight on the email hacks and Russia's um, potential involvement um, with that, and maybe aiding in the election of Donald Trump? Well, I think this is something that Russia's pioneered: is this sort of combination of hacking and leaking, rather basic cyber um, espionage techniques to get hold of information, and then the it's targeted leaking in a way that has a political effect. And I would say this started. Um, it way long time ago. There was a, one big example in Poland where the um, private restaurant conversations of various Polish politicians, including my friend Radek Sikorski, were bugged and then leaked in a way that made him look silly. And you know, he was using swear words and you know, talking as people do talk when yeah. they're with friends in a, in a restaurant. And yet this became a sort of political scandal in Poland. And I think it was the same story in, with, with the um, American mm. um, campaign emails that here were politicians horror of all horrors, behaving like politicians, stitching up their opponents <laughs> and doing, <laughs> doing mucky back, backstage deals. That's what politicians do. Yeah. Um, you know, it's a bit like bugging the locker room in a, in a, for, for a sporting contest and saying, here all these sporting heroes using bad language. And you know, people, if, if, you, if you accept that people have the right to a private sphere, in that private sphere they will do things differently from the public sphere. And I think, again, this is a basically a problem for journalists that we haven't really worked out what we think about stolen information mm. and in what circumstances is it, is it right and it, to me it's not enough just that it's sensational mm. um, I think we have to think about you know, is has someone stolen this and leaked it for a reason mm. and how discreditable is this actually is this behavior and so well but Russia until we've worked that out and I'm not sure we will in the mean in the short term mm. um, this is an open goal for Russia mm. I mean do you think well will journalists ever Consider the bigger pictures of what they're reporting, or will it? Because I, I kind of, I don't know. It's such a competitive environment these days that it, um, the scoop seems to trump or ever everything yeah, else. It's a problem. It's a problem. Yeah. And do you think journalists are the right people to make those choices? Well, I don't think anyone else can. Mm. Um, and I do, I do think that we can throw a bit more um, other sorts of pressure at the fake news sites, so we can encourage advertisers not to advertise on them. We can, I think, do a better job of highlighting to people who click on those, if you Google or through Twitter or Facebook, you're heading towards one of these sites. I think you, you can get a better sort of warning saying this site is never publishes corrections or apologies, has no street address, um, yeah, has been repeatedly flagged up for publishing utterly invented stories. So we can warn people a bit about, about that. I think we can be a bit tougher on the when they have real journal have people working for them, we can say they're not real journalists. So you can't come to press conferences, or if you come to press press conference, you can't ask questions. We won't respond to your emails. Um, yeah, and I think there's, you know, there's one, one very very important thing is: do you publish corrections and apologies? And that to me is the it's much easier to look at the honesty of the messenger rather than the correctness of the message. And journalism is full of mistakes all the time, including at the Economist. But when we make a mistake, we try and correct it. And there's a whole category of websites out there, including RT and Sputnik, who either never or almost never um, publish corrections. And so that's a very good test of good faith. And I think we could be a bit tougher in enforcing it. Yeah. 
one one other scandal. Sorry, I seem to be talking about scandals a lot at the moment. But um, we had after the email hack scandal, we then had the um, doc, the dossier um, from former MI6 officer Christopher Steele of the potential compromise against President Trump. Um, do you have any thoughts or insight on on that? Well, I doubt it's all made up, and even if only ten percent of it is true, it's still very worrying. Mm. Mm. Yeah, because I mean. What's quite interesting, and some people online have observed this, that um, Donald Trump is very critical of lots of people online, but never of Vladimir Putin. And it does. And, and um, if you look at some of the policies Trump's putting forward, like the idea that potentially they might remove themselves from NATO, it does seem to be a little bit in line with Russian aims. Um, so it's definitely something kind of, I don't know, something, something feels fishy, but obviously we don't know for sure. <laughs> yeah, well, I think there's, there's all sorts of things that may be fishy. It may be that people in the Trump campaign have um, dodgy connections to the Kremlin. It may mm. be that um, Trump's own behaviour in Russia mm. um, has left him open to, to compromise. Mm. My, my suspicion is the most troubling thing is the um, source of funds for some of the Trump um, companies um, or Trump empires. Uh, business projects, and if, if some of that has come from um, even disguised Russian sources, um, that may that may be may be tricky. It's also quite difficult to run casinos and construction businesses in New York mm. while staying completely clear of organised crime. And of course, Russian organised crime is very big in both New Jersey and and, and New York. Mm. So I think there are, there are lots of worrying things. On the other hand, there are lots of the American institutions are very strong, and um, the other people he's appointed to the cabinet, are, for the most part. Um, pretty impressive. So I'm, I'm, I'm not a catastrophist when it comes to the Trump administration, although there, there are some worrying things. Yeah, definitely. I mean, well, for me personally, I think, I don't know, Steve Bannon seems to be a very worrying figure. And um, we were talking earlier about sort of um, Putin, his popularity with the, the right, and certainly Steve Bannon. Um, I don't know whether he is a Putin supporter, but it, it'd be interesting to see. Well, he likes the idea of Judeo-Christian civilization, mm. but I, I mean, it, it's very interesting. You know, it's wrong to think of Putin as a great ally against Islam. It, mm. Putin never uses the phrase mm. Islamic terrorism. He, mm. he, Putin has excellent relations with Muslims in mm. in Russia, mm. um, and is very proud of Russia's um, commendable um, record as a multi-confessional state. Where mm. um, and you have, you. Know, people with very distinctive Muslim names, or Tatars or Bashkirs or whatever, mm. reaching very, very high positions in the Russian government. And there's enormous mosque built in, um, built, built in Moscow in, in, in recent years. And so to see, although, and, and although he did fight a very tough war against the Chechens, the Chechen is probably the, the most rigorously Islamic part of Russia, and the Chechen leader is best part of Putin. So I think it's very simplistic to say that um, you know, that, that, that Putin would be an ally against global Islam. Mm. He's not even a particularly good ally against ISIS because mm. almost all the attacks in Syria against the Syrian rebels, some of whom may be Islamists, mm. but um, oh, indeed are Islamists, but um, it's, uh, I think the, 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 the Trumpian worldview um, simplifies and distorts quite a lot of things, and this is one of them. Mm. Um, one other. Uh, interesting thing that came up recently was um, Donald Trump was interviewed about. Um, well, he was he was in an interview with I think it was Bill O'Reilly, and it came up about so Bill O'Reilly basically called Putin a killer, and um, and uh, yeah, Donald Trump sort of quashed that down quite quickly. But uh, there d does seem to be a lot of um, 
well, appears to be a lot of blood on Putin's hand. I mean, 34 journalists have been murdered since 2000, according to Glasnost. Um, you know, we've obviously in London had um, Alexander Litvinenko, Boris Neps. Uh, Sorry, Boris Nemtsov, I think I've yes. pronounced that correctly. He was gunned down in cold blood in 2015, and one of his successors is currently in hospital in a coma under, uh, with potential acute poisoning, as the officials have called it. Do you think Putin is involved in these killings, or is it just a coincidence? I think what we can say is Putin has created a climate in which people feel they can kill with pretty much with impunity. Mm. Um, it's, I, I think the um, Thomas Beckett is probably the... the those of your listeners who studied English history will know when the king said, who will rid me of this turbulent priest? And then four knights went off and did exactly that and killed the Archbishop of Canterbury at his altar in Canterbury Cathedral. Um, so I think that uh, the, um, yeah, the, the, the trail doesn't lead directly back to Putin. It's also worth remembering that a lot of journalists were killed in the Yeltsin era as well, probably more than in the Putin era. Um, that may be partly because there's more self-censorship now. But um, yeah, it's certainly true, a great many people have been killed, and perhaps the really striking thing is there's, there's almost never a proper investigation. Mm. It ends up with some sort of very lowly Chechen or someone like that being um, accused of and prosecuted with not being at all clear if they really did it. And if, mm. if they did it, who ordered them to do it? Then they disappear into the Russian penal system and quite possibly um, pop straight out again under another name one doesn't, doesn't really know. But it's um, the, I think it's um, rather like with correcting journalistic, journalistic mistakes. The biggest question is why is no one ever, um, why are these crimes not properly investigated? And that to me is the, you know, exemplifies what's wrong with the Putin system. What we discussed today, it's very easy to see Putin as a sort of strong man who apparently has universal support in, with the Russian people. Uh, but in 2011, there was an interesting incident that you mentioned at a judo match where members of the public booed him. And it's led to him having a much tighter control on his public image today. How popular is Putin today? It's very hard to tell because popularity is a function of, of how much criticism is allowed. And I think that what we can say is that Russians are basically quite fed up with the way the country is run. And if you look at polling on corruption, um, infrastructure, public services, these things, Russians basically don't like the way things are going. But they do like Putin. Now, why? You know, part of that may be fear. If you're asked by a total stranger, what do you think of the man who can put you in jail and ruin your family's life? The wise thing to do is to say, I like him. And I'm, you know, Russian opposition politicians often say they're impressed that the bravery of the 10% of the population that's willing to say they don't like Putin. But talking to Russians privately, I, I mean, no doubt they, he does have a lot of popularity, but a lot of the hard questions are never put to him. Um, what about all this corruption, these huge amounts of money, sums that are stolen? And that's not just all invention of the Western media, that money really is stolen. What about all these people who've been killed? Um, why is modernization um, such a failure? And I think if you had independent media which could pose really tough questions and you had um, real political competition so that you had you know, substantial politicians elected in important positions who said um, Putin's taking the country in the wrong direction, I think both the weather and then the landscape would change very quickly in Russia. But if you suppress all meaningful criticism, it's not surprising you come out on top. And what do you think the future holds for Russia? I never make predictions because I think the, you know, we, there, there are two good rules about, um, for outsiders dealing with Russia. One is anything you try to do probably doesn't work. So we tried, um, you know, we propped up Boris Yeltsin and 
therefore introduced the um, bacillus of election rigging and um, media manipulation into Russian politics um, in a disgraceful way. And we did get we did get Yeltsin back in the nineties, um, both through his constitution and re-elected. Um, but I think the price was far higher. It would have been better for those things not to have happened and just let democracy take its course. Um, and we tried being nice to Putin because we thought that would you know anchor him in the West, and that didn't work either. Then we tried being nasty to Putin, and that didn't work either. So I think we, we, we the, the main thing we should do is to look after our allies. That's something we can do. Look after the Estonians, Latvians, Lithuanians, Finns and Swedes, Georgians, and you know, the Russians will in the end sort out what they want in Russia. It may be good, it may be bad, but it's you know, we we can't um, we can't try and sort of you know, run Russia from afar. It's nonsense to talk about who lost Russia or who won Russia. Russia's not a suitcase. You can't just lose it. Um, and I think the other thing is we should we'd be very cautious about predictions. Um, nobody saw Putin coming. Nobody realised Yeltsin was going to go, was going to end so badly. Um, we are. Um, I mean, it's partly that our institutional ability to read Russia has degraded massively since the end of the Cold War. But actually, even in the Cold War, we weren't that good. I don't think many people saw the Soviet collapse coming. So I think we should be very humble about that. What we should do is listen very attentively to our friends in the frontline states. They warned us back in the 90s things were going in the wrong direction both in terms of repression at home and aggression abroad. And we didn't listen to them. We patronised them and ignored them and belittled them and said they had post-traumatic stress disorder and didn't really understand the, the big picture. Actually, they were completely right. And if we listened to their advice back in the 90s, uh, we would be not in the mess that we are in now. Thank you very much for joining me today. And um, where can listeners find out more about you and your work? EdwardLucas.com or they can follow me on Twitter at EdwardLucas. If you've enjoyed the show, please spread the word by connecting with us on Twitter by going to at DryCleanerCast. For more information about the podcast, please visit our website, www.drycleanercast.co.uk. Thank you for listening to the Dry Cleaner Cast. 